Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you, Steve. You may not know this, but every year I put together a preaching calendar, and I look at what I'm going to speak on, and sometimes there's little gaps, and I uh, had a, uh, a two-Sunday gap. I wasn't sure what I would preach on, and uh, I always seek the Lord, what should I teach our church? And let me show you what I'm going to preach on today. Why should I care about Israel? Now, I have come to feel led to preach on this, partly because what I see is a generation that does not know what the Bible says about Israel, about God's relationship with Israel, and why what's going on right now in the Middle East is something you should pay attention to. It's, this is not a political talk. My hope is to give you something from Scripture because the Bible says it's the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to rightly divide between truth. And, and I think that there's a generation that is, first of all, uninformed about what the Bible says. And then, secondly, perhaps just misinformed. And as I listen to some of the conversations that go on, I have felt led, you know, I'm going to teach a couple Sundays on this subject. And my hope really is that uh, it will give you something that comes from Scripture to be able to engage in conversation on, on this subject. So I'm sitting at my house, and I'm watching some of this that's going on, and Israel declares war, and they're interviewing people, and they're talking about it, and I remember there was a Palestinian they were interviewing, and the Palestinian said, our hope is that the other Arab nations will rise up with us, stand with us. We want the last final war to get rid of Israel. And that's where I sat up and went, whoa. You see, because those words are saying, that's in Scripture. And there is a time where you need to be holding the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In fact, I stole that line. That comes from a Swiss theologian, uh, Karl Barth. And that's what he said. We must hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And he died in the 1960s, so he was alive to get to see some things that really applied to his statement. But by way of illustration, let me just present it to you this way. Imagine you're alive 2,000 years ago and you're living in the city of Jerusalem. And you get up one morning and it seems like a regular day in Jerusalem and you pull out your newspaper. I don't know if they had newspapers back then like this, you know, but just, for, just go with me on the illustration. Because here's the point. You look down and you see this as the headlines. Magi from the east have come into town asking questions about the Messiah. Now, if you're a good Jew and you know your scriptures, you would go, wait a minute. You'd sit up on your seat. You know, there's something in our scriptures about that. And you begin to look and you're looking at this and you're looking at that. For unto us a child is born. For unto you a son is given. A government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, right? And of his government, his rule, there will be no end. So within Judaism, they were looking for the Messiah. Three guys, or however many, show up. 
Say they're from the east. Say they're looking. We've read this. We've seen something that leads us to believe it's time. And you're going like this. Now, Karl Barth would have been alive. The guy who said, hold the newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other, in 1948. A lot of Bible scholars and theologians sat up because in 1948, something incredible happened. Israel became a nation again. Now that's astounding because they hadn't collectively been a nation with a representative government since the Romans destroyed them in A.D. 70. That's almost 2,000 years that they were not in existence as a nation. They were scattered people all over the globe. Suddenly in 1948, they're back together. There's a declaration, we are Israel again. There's the headline. There it is, look. And you would have been looking, is this in the Bible? And pastors and theologians were saying, it's right here. What's my next slide? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Now, when I heard this comment come out from my TV, we are looking for all the Arab nations collectively to stand against Israel, the last final war, to wipe them out. You know what I did? I went back for this message into an old message that I preached when we were in the series on Daniel. And I pulled a slide. I took a picture of it. And, and here's the slide. The battle for Armageddon. And in that particular message, that message was called the last battle of man. And look at who's fighting in that. Ten kingdom federation, right? You have the king of the north, kings of the east, king of the south. There's the Lord's army. He appears at the very end. But who's at the bottom? Israel. Now, if you're looking forward, you're reading and you're saying that's going to happen in the future, but there's no Israel. How can that take place? And so in 1948, a lot of scholars sat up and went, whoa, wait a minute. If there's a government of Israel now, they're starting to see some things unfold. Are we close to the end? Was the question people were asking. You see that. And my point really at the beginning is to tell you the importance of doing this. You must filter this with this. And what I've seen is that some of the views that I hear, they're watching what's going on. Because here, this, this is what I predict, and I'm not a prophet or anything, you know. But I have seen Israel say that the ground invasion will begin. And it may last four to eight weeks. Who knows? But you're going to see a lot of images like this. And the discussions are going to be out there. Should Israel be doing that? that? They're a bully to the Palestinians. And there's conversations that are going on. And as a pastor, what I want to do is I want to take you to Scripture today. And I want you to see something in it that will help you in your conversations. And I will tell you this, that my hope is that you're grounded in Scripture. I don't have a political opinion. And I think that some of the questions being asked are hard to answer you look at a, a baby that has lost its foot because of bombings, and you have to interact with people on that. It's not an easy thing. So let's look at Scripture today, and let's see where it takes us. And here's the first thing that I want to give you about Israel, okay? And it's this, God's choice. 
God's choice was Israel. Did I lose you? There we are. Okay. God's choice of Abraham. Where did Israel come from? Abraham. One of the things you see in Scripture is that God chose a man to grow a nation rather than choose a nation. Because when he chooses Abraham, there were nations around. He could have like, I got to skip the process and wait for a people to grow into a nation. I'm just going to go pick a nation. But he doesn't. He picks a man. In Genesis 12, and you should make note of that. Genesis chapter 12. Do you know what chapters 1 through 11 have? Some of the biggest stuff in the Bible. Creation, the fall of man, the flood, the Tower of Babel. We're going to give all those events 11 chapters. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. The the rest, 39 chapters, are all about the nation of Israel. That should say something to you. And God comes to this family. Abraham has a couple brothers. There's his father. They live in Ur. And it's a Mesopotamian family. One of his brothers dies, but they have a son. So his nephew is Lot. You've probably heard of him. That's this family. God comes. He doesn't choose this brother. He doesn't choose a nephew. He doesn't choose a father. He chooses Abraham, or Abram at the time is his name. He says, And God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now he's going to send him on a journey. He's going to tell him, I've got a land for you. We're going to look at that in a second. I want you to leave your homeland and be a pilgrim and travel all the way over here to this other land I've got for you. Now, some of you, okay, we know the story, but that would be, I mean, what if God came to you and said that? I want you to pack up and leave your family and travel far away to this place I've got for you. But that is how the story begins. Now, you might say, well, why did he choose Abraham? That's a discussion you can have. In my view, as a pastor, is, is, it's based on the sovereignty of God and all of it. Yes, Abraham was going to respond in faith. But a lot of his life, he didn't respond in faith. Many times, he demonstrated a lack of faith. The story of Abraham as a person is God's patience and his sovereignty at drawing him closer and closer to yielding every part of his heart to God and his sovereignty. And that's a picture of Israel as well. But you might say, why would God choose the Jews? There's a saying that I've heard before that some writer, he said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. I mean, who were they as a people? They were, there were many other Stronger nations, more developed nations. Why Israel? In fact, that question was asked. And in Deuteronomy 7, the response back is, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And this is something that we see in God. He comes and he chooses us, not based upon the value that's here. He's chose me because I've got a great track record of morality. A great track record of following the Ten Commandments. A great track record. Fill in the blank. No. God, what you will see in Scripture is God's choices are based upon his sovereignty and his purposes. But he chose Israel. He chose Abram. This is God's choice. Now, after 
the choice, I want you to see the promises that he makes to Abram. So he says to him, get out of your country to a land. I want you to go to this land that I will show you. And then this is what he says to him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in that little passage, you see four primary promises that he makes to Abram. And I wanted to look at those briefly because one of the things I want to show you through the message is God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. The first one, I will make you a great nation. Well, that came true. Is there anywhere on the planet that we don't know about Jews? They came from one man and one woman, and they are, all, they are everywhere. Jews. They are a great nation. In fact, um, almost every country you can go to, most of the modern countries, a significant part of the population you will find is Jewish. One writer said, This people, the Jews, has already made its way into every city, and it is not easy to find any place in the habitable world which has not received this nation and in which it has not made its power felt. You see, it wasn't just a numerical promise. He blessed them. Now, you could say, Remember, he said, look at the stars. How many are there? Can you count them? Look at, the, look at a beach and look at all the grains of sand. Can you count them? I can't count on them. So will your offspring be, Abraham. But also, he said, I will bless you. Not just this numerical blessing, but I will bless you, Abraham. And you see this in a couple ways there. First of all, he says, you will have a great name. I'm going to give you a great name. Well, that came true, didn't it? Abraham. I mean, even me as a child grew up singing songs about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. How many of you know that song, right? I mean, you sang it growing up, right? By the end of the song, you're waving around everything around and turn around in a circle, right? It's like you're doing the, it's the spiritual hokey pokey song. That's what I, that's how I always remember it, right? But just think about this. The three largest religions in the world all of them connect to Abraham. Christianity, of course, Judaism, of course, but even the Muslims. That's a significant part of the world. He has a great name, Father Abraham, but not just numerical, not just his name, but I will bless you and the people. Mark Twain wrote about the Jewish people. Jews constitute but one percent of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of. He is as prominent on this planet as any other people. His commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also altogether out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world. 
in all ages, and he has done it with his hands tied behind him. David Jeremiah was writing, and he said, One outstanding fact that dramatically illustrates Twain's point is the disproportionate number of Nobel Prizes awarded to Jews. From 1901 to 2007, a total of 777 Nobel Prizes have been given to individuals in recognition of significant contributions to mankind. Of that total, 176 have been awarded to Jews. Of the 6 billion inhabitants of the world, only slightly more than 13 million are Jewish, less than two-thirds of 1% of the total world population. That minuscule percentage of the population has won 22.6% of all the Nobel Prizes awarded. That's pretty amazing. And what I'm trying to show you is God's faithfulness to His promises. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And what else does He say? And you shall be a blessing... And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we see that promise fulfilled as well. One pastor said, God blesses the Jewish people directly and through them blesses us, the Gentiles of the world, all the non-Jews. Now just think about this. If you want to consider the blessing that we receive from the Jews in fulfillment to that promise that he just made to Abram. Without the Jews, we wouldn't have the Bible. Without the Jews, we wouldn't have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments largely impacted most civilizations in governing. Without the Jews, we wouldn't have Jesus. Without the Jews, we wouldn't have Christianity. And when we look at the long road traveled from Abraham to where we get the Savior and our salvation, it's filled with Jews. Abraham is Jewish. Moses and the role he played in that story, Jewish. All the prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah and others who prophesied and contributed to Scripture, Jewish. The first Christian family, Joseph and Mary, who had to believe in the gospel story right there and travel on the road to give birth to the Messiah. The first Christian family, Jewish. The New Testament, largely written by the Apostle Paul, Jewish. And when you look at that long line, do you know what you don't see? You don't see a Baptist. You don't see a Charismatic. You don't see a Presbyterian. You don't see a Methodist. It's filled with Jews. They have been a blessing, if not only on this point, to be the vehicle through which God has brought about salvation for mankind. And I have read Jews who have said, why did you select us? Do you understand the pain and the, the hard road traveled because we're selected? Because you chose us? Because you chose us, we've been hunted? Because you chose us, there have been demonic and satanic plans to wipe them out, genocide. You can go all the way back from the very beginning. They have been oppressed as a people. 
The book of Esther is devoted to the story of overcoming a plot to kill all the Jews. And we are most familiar with World War II, where millions of Jews were killed. But in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He goes on to say, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now, these two points I want to elaborate on more next week. But, in short, I can tell you that God blesses people who are part of the preservation, defense, and provision for His people. And He curses those who try to destroy them. And when you look at history, you can see that. Haman, the story with Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther, that plan was wiped out. The originator of the plan hung. Nazi Germany destroyed. You can see the faithfulness of God's promises to His people. So, we see God's choice. We see God's promises, but I also want to point something out because God is a God of truth. If He says something, this is a promise, you can take it to the bank. He has the means to make it happen. But now we in our humanity, we may say, well, are you sure? And that's what Abram does. You get to Genesis 15 and uh, God's telling him, you're the same promises and you're going to have a son and a great nation, and you know what he says to him? I don't have a child. I'm getting old. My wife is barren. How are we going to make this happen? And God affirms within him his promises, and he does so by making a covenant with him. In fact, the words in Genesis 15, Abram says, is how am I to know I will possess it? And that line particularly applies to the land that he said, I'm going to give you. But it says, a few verses later in Genesis 15, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now you can go read it. I'm going to tell you what happened. I've talked about this in detail in other sermons, but the way they would make a, a covenant, a binding covenant, like today, if we're going to have something that's really official and binding, we might go you know, ha ha find a lawyer and craft the language and then have it certified or what's that where you put the stamp on it? I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, see, you know, notarize it, right? They didn't have notaries back then. They're like in the desert, find a notary, you know, didn't work. This is what they, they did. God says, go get five animals. And he lays the animals out and each animal is cut in two. And they take the animal halves and they separate them like this. And then to make it binding, the two people agreeing to make the covenant walk between the animals and it's said, let it be known about our covenant one to another. And if either of us break the covenant, do to us what we've done to these animals. I give you permission basically to cut me in two if I break this covenant. That was taken pretty seriously to hold up your end of the bargain right? Now, when you read it in Genesis 15, do you know what happens? 
it is said that only God walked between those animals. Not Abram. Why? Because God made the covenant unconditional and based upon who he was as God. You see, a covenant can be conditional or it can be unconditional. A conditional covenant depends on both parties. A conditional covenant, you know how you can find it in the Bible, a conditional covenant, they're there. Look for the word if. If you do this, that's a condition. There are no ifs in this case. In this case, God walked between those animals and says, I'm going to uphold this. Following through on the promises is dependent upon me and who I am as God, my character and my attributes. These were God's promises. You see that God chose Abram. He chose Israel, and he made promises and covenant to fulfill those. And that takes me to the next point I want to talk to you about, which is God's land. And this has a lot of application to today because this is really what's stirring the pot in the Middle East. It's all about the land. Arabs live there. They make claims to the land. Jews are there. And there's a fight over this, right? Well, in, you're going to see this in more than one place, but I put it up there in Genesis 12. God gave the land because he owns it. He did not give the land to Abram or the nation of Israel because they were there first. And I, I put that line in there with intentionality because one of the things I hear in conversations today is all about land and whose land is it really? And these people came and took our land and we need to give land back. But let's pause for a second. And when it comes to this particular point, you need to understand this. God owns everything. And I could fill slides with verses that talk about this, but I picked a few. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established on the waters. Deuteronomy 10, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Look at those categories. Heaven that we can see, the heaven we can't see, the earth and everything in the earth belongs to God. Exodus 19, all the earth is mine. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And I like the, I put the Haggai one there because it's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's when they're, the exiles are returning and they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And there's some, some disparity and there's some, some depression about how it's going. And God speaks through the prophet to remind them who he is. We're going to build a temple, and it will be great. Why? We don't have all the nice things to bring in. We don't have the gold. We don't have the silver. And in that moment, God says to him, all the gold in the world is mine. All the silver in the world is mine. I will bring it from out there to here to make the temple great. God owns everything. He is the owner, and owners can do with what they own what they will. And I put the point that way. He gave them the land because he owns it, not because the Jews were there first. And I want to make this point. He told him, leave your home. I'm going to show you a land. So he brings him. If you read, read about it in Genesis, he brings him to that point. 
And he says, this is the land. He shows them the land. This is the land I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to your offspring. And then there's this one line right after that. It says, because he's looking at the land of Canaan. And it says, and the Canaanites were dwelling in that land at that time. They weren't first. But God gives it to them. And not only that, he, he, he doesn't, he's specific about how much and where those boundaries are. In uh, Genesis uh, 15, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is after he's walking through the, the animals. And, and this is what he says, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now look at all these peoples too. To the land of the Kenites. I got to use my glasses on this. To the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and the Termites. I'm just seeing if you're still awake. I'm pretty sure there were some termites somewhere in that land. So we can throw them in there. But look at all those people groups that are in the land. And he says, I'm going to give you that land. And I put this up there. Our, we're, we're, we've ordered new um, projectors, so it's not as clear as it might be. But the next slide shows you a map. Do you see that red line? Everything I just read to you, that's the boundary. And do you know what you notice about that? It is significantly larger than where Israel is right now. And the reality is that Israel has never fully encompassed that entire region, and they will not until a time in the future. Now, I want to give you one more point on this land, okay? And the last point is that God gave it in perpetuity. And what that means is forever. It's everlasting. It wasn't, you get this for a few generations. He gave it to them in perpetuity. And you see this in more than one place, but I put up here Genesis 17. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. And look what it says. As an everlasting what? Possession. And I will be their God. Now I want you to, I'm going to use an illustration to try to teach a point. Some time ago, my wife and I, we were in the Philippines, and we had a long layover. We had, I think we had just traveled to uh, Bali to visit the orphanage that this church has supported. But when you go through Manila to Bali, you have a really long layover. And so we didn't want to sit like a day in the airport, so we left the airport. We're going to go do some stuff and come back. And we heard about these... uh, movie theaters that were called Premiere, you know, and it wasn't like a normal theater. They had these awesome seats. I got a picture uh, to, as an illustration. They look like, you know, lounge recliners, and, and you show up, and you, you pick out your seat. You pay for it, and they say you're on this seat, and you go in, and I mean, it's just like leather, you know, and then it kicks out, and it's just so nice. You can even have a blanket, and there's a little pillow, and then a butler shows up. He's like, would you like some popcorn? Yes. We have garlic, butter, cheese, sour cream. It's like, you know, and then and your drink, you know. Premiere, right? Now, I just want you to imagine a scenario where you showed up 
and you got that ticket, let me change it a little bit. Let's say the owner of the theater said, we, there is a premiere movie coming out, hot ticket, everybody wants to see it, I want you to go, I'm giving you a ticket, I'm giving it to you. And you show up, and there it is, you got your seat, you sit down, you can't believe it, it's nice, and you're sitting there, you're relaxed, you take your coat off, you put it on the side, you got your phone, you put it here, and you're sitting there, and then the phone rings, and you say, uh-oh, and you oh, I gotta do, take this call. Important, work-related, and you exit, and you deal with the call. And then you come back, and when you come back, lo and behold, someone's sitting in your seat. Excuse me, but this is my seat. Well, it was empty. Well, look at my ticket right here. It shows that I, and a, a fight breaks out, right? Like verbal. And then the usher comes, you know, we need help solving this issue. That is where we're at today in the Middle East. And it looks like this. The theater goer is Israel. Okay? And they've come to sit in the seat, which is Israel's homeland. Now, the ticket equals the Bible where legal assignment is recorded. I gave that to you today. Today I showed you where God said, I'm giving it to you. Now, the temporary vacancy of the seat equals Israel's absence from AD 70 to 1948. That's a pretty long absence, but nevertheless, that's what it represents. The squatter equals various groups who availed themselves of the opportunity to take the land in Israel's absence. Okay? And then the coat that's sitting there that you left behind represents the historical artifacts throughout the land showing Israel's previous habitation really happened. You can imagine the theater saying, but it's my seat. Don't you see? The coat was there. I left it there. And there's no doubt, if you go through the land of Israel, how many things exist there that speak to the fact that they habitated there previously. They were there long ago, even though their absence has been long. The usher represents, like the usher's trying to, to, to solve it, right? Well, in 1948, it would have been the League of Nations, but today, in more modern times, it would be the UN. And they're trying to help solve that. Now, when you look at what's going on, there can be a lot of sympathy. It's been how many decades that the Palestinians have, it's like they've been thrown out. Israel showed up and Pastor David Jeremiah said it's easy to slip into a sympathetic mode toward the occupying Arabs. But the bottom line is simply this. The land belongs to God first. And God gave it to his people as an inheritance to his people forever. Now, I want to move on from the land and show you a couple other things. And the next one deals with God's affection. And I kind of say this, don't ever underestimate God's love for the Jewish people. The Bible records this many places, and I always select some for you to read, but here it says, for you, that's Israel, are a people holy 
to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And there's two things working there. One is he loves them. Secondly, he loved their fathers and made a promise to them that he will keep. Now, you can see this in other places. In Chronicles, it says, there is none like you. I love this one. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. This is talking about God. And then it says, and who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things. And I want you to see the connection in this verse that connects God's name with his people. When Israel came out of Egypt, you know the story how God broke the Egyptians with the plagues. And as they went down on the road to the promised land, they came to people and they thought, we might have to fight these people. And they said, nope. Some they did. But some said, oh, we heard about you and we heard about your God and how he broke the Egyptians. Now, you got to understand that Egypt was a superpower. And if their God, these, these nation of slaves, their God broke the superpower, people go, whoa, that their name is connected to that God. They wear the name. And there's actually times where David, he's praying upwards to God. And he says, hey, have you forgot us? We're surrounded. We're, we're in trouble here, but we wear your name. We get defeated. That's on, that's on your name. Don't let that happen. Don't you want a great name? I mean, isn't that a way to do it, right? Don't you want a great name? Help us win, right? Now, recently, one of my sons, Micah, he's over there. He, a uh, 10th grader, all those boys right there, they all are into soccer. He found this stash of soccer jerseys in my closet up high like this, you know, and some of them were like clubs that are, oh, I want to wear that club. But he found this one that's an old jersey of mine. It's when I, long time ago, long time ago, when I played uh, for a short while with the Guam national team, and it's got my name on the back. It says K. Elwell, right? He says, I'm going to wear this. It's like, you know, vintage Guam national team, you know? And he went to put it on. He goes to GFA. He goes into the soccer circles, you know? And my first thought was people would go, your dad was on the national team? You know, that was my first thought. I was like, well, it was a different team back then, you know. It was in development. They're a better team now. But the name, he's wearing the name literally. And, you know, it's like what he does and how he acts is a representation of that. If he is out there playing and is great, people go, oh, Elwell, you know. If he scores an own goal, people go, Elwell, Right? There's a, there's a connection between the name and Father. Now, this exists, and even today for us, 
the church, this exists. We wear the name of Christ. You are a Christian. That's why you are to be salt and light, to draw people to truth, to walk in a way worthy of the name that you wear. God's affection on Israel. Now, I have to preach this sermon in two parts, okay? And today is kind of foundational to get at some other things next week. But the way I want to land it today is to get to the end and remind you of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. I mean, the fact that Israel, for 2,000 years nearly, being scattered all over the planet, was able to come back as a nation is incredible. You, you may not even grasp that. But what you could do is you could go back in time to that Genesis moment, chapter 12, a little bit later where he says, I'm going to show you this land. This is going to be your land. And at that time, the Canaanites were living there, but they weren't the only nation or people around. There were many people around. And yet, all these years, thousands and thousands of years, Israel exists, and all of those people at that very beginning moment are gone. Gary Frazier wrote about how you can't find any of the ancient neighbors of Israel. He says, have you ever met a Moabite? Do you know any Hittites? Are there any tours to visit the Ammonites? Can you find the postal code of a single Edomite? No. These ancient peoples disappeared from history and from the face of the earth. Yet the Jews, just as God promised, returned to their land. Now, when they returned to their land, I, I need to tell you this, it wasn't religiously motivated. There are three kinds of Jews in the world. There's a Jew who is still looking for the Messiah and is religious and reads the Scriptures. A vast majority of Jews, though, are secular and atheist. They don't believe in any God, but they still identify in a Jewish way to their heritage, to their culture, to their people and their story. The third kind of Jew is a Messianic Jew. They are a Jew who has come to see Christ in the Scriptures and have come to be, put their faith in them, to be a believer in Christ. But after World War II, it was a Zionist movement, that's the word they used, that drew the Jews back. The horrif horrifying revelation of what happened to them during World War II. And there was a, a, a movement of, to go back to our land, to be a people again. However, now the Bible talked about that, but it also talks about a future that is a spiritual return. But I want to read to you so you can see it. Ezekiel, the prophet, wrote in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. He says, I will take, this is God speaking, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He goes on to say, I will cleanse you. 
I will give you a new, he- new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land and I gave, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now there's two things going on there. First he says, I'm going to gather you from all the nations, right? But then he goes on to say, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you a new heart. Though that part hasn't totally happened yet. You will live in the land that I gave to you. Now, this is, this is prophecy. Prophecy works like this. I already quoted to you from Isaiah. For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. That's the Christmas verse. But then the next part of that verse didn't happen. It says a government will be on his shoulder. He will reign forever. He's not reigning on the earth. Sometimes in prophecy, in one verse, You can have a gap of thousands of years. And here in this section, you see, I'm going to gather you from all the nations. 1948. And then, in the future, there's going to be a spiritual revival. And I just picked one verse in the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And he's saying there will come a time in the future where there will be a revival and the nation as a whole will recognize who Christ was. It's a spiritual return. So we got the physical return to the land that's promised, but their hearts still are not there yet. Right now, he says, it's a partial hardening. Some of the Jews have come to know Christ. They're part of the church. But in the future, and this is what I want to say, is that they have a future. Now, the last slide I'm going to show you is I want, I got to give you something to grab onto right now today. Next week when you come back, I want to talk about if this is the foundation, then how do you go forward? Because it's not as if you could just go to the UN to that usher and say, hey, the Bible says God gave him the land, so that solves it all not going to work, right? It's not going to work. They don't recognize the Bible's authority. They don't recognize God, right? So how do you process this? And the images you're going to see on TV, this is what I want. I want to give you something from Scripture, but I'm saving some for next week. But for now, I want you to see the gospel in this story. The very story that I have just told you is also your story. Yes, God chose Israel, but you know what? He chose you. I could put verses on all of these. Just to give you some, Ephesians chapter 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose you as well to come to know Christ. Just as He gave promises to Israel, He gives promises to you. You put your faith in Christ. There are promises for you. I can't name them all. He promised to send us a helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us. He, he promises if you, are, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promises are recorded in the New Testament. We looked at a lot of promises in the Old Testament to Israel. Just like Israel was chosen, you were chosen. Just like promises to Israel, promises to you. 
What about land? You say, Pastor, what about land? Well, he gave a land promise to Israel. But you know what Jesus said to, for us? He says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. And I go away to prepare a place for you. I don't know what it looks like. We don't get that description. But I, it's spatial. It's a place. And it's for you. Reserved. Just like he casts his affection on Israel, he casts his affection on you. For God so loved the world. Peter writes that God is slow and patient to bring about the end. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish. He's giving time for people to come to know Christ as Savior. In faithfulness. You know, somebody could make a covenant and you would say, how do we know this is going to be fulfilled? And the person making the covenant might say, you know, here's, here's a resume, I, you know, like, like I've got this much money that I can utilize to help make it happen. God's like, I own everything. I'm all powerful. I can make it happen, right? But perhaps a really good way to be grounded that God will follow through in his faithfulness is to look at what he's already done. Sometimes you get, somebody's going to apply for a job, you call and try to get a reference. How good of an employee were they? And you might say, were they faithful? And when you look at God's relationship with Israel, that's the thing I want to say to you, is that he has demonstrated faithfulness in the relationship. Yes, sometimes he has disciplined them because they were evil. They were evil. And sometimes he scattered them. But you, you see his affection. You see his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. And because of that, I would say to you, he is faithful to you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be encouraged to know that you're sovereign in all things. Sometimes figuring out what's going on in the world is so difficult. And sometimes we can just say, you know, God hasn't fallen off his throne. He will work things out in his own way. He, he, he works all things together for good. My prayer, Lord, is, like I said at the beginning, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And my belief is that there's some really hard things to see right now in the Middle East, and there's some hard conversations. And I hear some things that are rising up within culture. Some of it sounds anti-Semitic. Some of it sounds like what we might have heard in World War II, the attitude towards Jews. Some of it sounds like it's grounded in culture, the values of culture, not Scripture. And so my greatest hope and joy is to be faithful to teaching your word, that you would use it, that it would penetrate the hearts of our people, that it would rightly divide between what is right and what is wrong, that it would give hope, and we could put our hope where it should be, in a faithful God who sets his affection upon us, who will keep his promises because he's chose us to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. If there's someone here who does not know Christ, I pray that you would draw them to you, that they would open themselves up to that truth. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.
Would you stand and we'll close our service singing together?